Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 214. And tonight, we are going to talk about stanza five of Bilbo's poem. Who knows? Maybe we'll get frisky and talk about stanzas five and six. I don't know. I would be a little surprised if that ends up happening. But who knows? We'll see. Um, anyway, before I start tonight, I wanted to announce a couple things. First of all, just to note, uh, many thanks again to all the volunteers who uh, have said they want to be involved in our Exploring the Lord of the Rings web project. Um, uh, I am really looking forward to seeing this. I was seeing that uh, discussions have already begun on our discussion forum. Uh, many thanks to the... And I've received many emails as well. Um, Jenny's going to be uh, kind of responding to people and uh, directing folks where they need to go, letting folks know the sort of first stages and things. So uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for your involvement in that. I think it's going to be... Think it's going to be awesome. There are m several ways in which I'm very excited about the Exploring the Lord of the Rings project, uh, and I'll be talking about some more of those uh, in the uh, uh, in the relatively near future. But um, anyway, so I just wanted to, if you haven't heard about it or you don't know about it, go to our forums uh, forums.signumuniversity.org, uh, and uh, you can find the Exploring the Lord of the Rings forums there, and uh, you can navigate through and discover the Legacy Project um, uh, forums and find out more about it. Um, and you can still easily get involved there. Uh, so anyway, um, the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to, I talked about this on my other broadcasts last week, but I was talking about uh, our web project here, so I didn't get to it last week. But I want to share this with you um, because this is a new initiative that we are doing at the Mythgard Institute that I think uh, is something that really should be uh, of interest uh, to a bunch of people here in this community. Um, so on Mythgard Institute, you click on Mythgard Miscellany, which is the new thing. Um, and Mythgard Miscellany is basically the, the, it's designed to be a platform where we can publish cool stuff, like interesting stuff. We want to broaden the voices that are involved in what we do. Like, to this point, Mythgard has, you know, the majority, especially if you do it, like, by hours, right? The vast majority of total Mythgard broadcast hours have been me talking about Tolkien. Um, and that's no shock, because I'm the one who started Mythgard, and it's what I do. And um, But um, we're wanting to have to hear from more people about more things, uh, other, you know, other sort of fandoms and uh, uh, interests that people have, um, uh, you know, so there are all kinds of things that we're interested in doing. So there, there are going to be a number of things here. One is uh, starting up the Mythgard Movie Club, which we've already done. So you can see, for instance, that we're going to be doing a discussion of the uh, Amazon Wheel of Time adaptation, which I found fascinating, by the way. Um, and uh, so we're, we're going to be talking about that next. So that's the movie club is one thing that's already been um, uh, been going on. But um, also the thing I wanted to especially draw to your attention is uh, the way that we plan to use Mythgard Miscellany as a platform for members of our community to publish stuff uh, here. So um, we invite people to submit anything. 
um, uh, uh, you know, a paper, a presentation, a performance, music, film, uh, you know, cosplay, whatever it is, um, and submit it. We're we're gonna we're gonna be curating these. Like it's it's not gonna be, it's, we're not just gonna be reposting everything. It's not just like an open board where anyone can post anything. Um, we're gonna be publishing this stuff basically uh, through Mythcard Miscellany. Um, but we. Right now, we just want to hear from as many people as possible. Um, there has been one, it's, it's been one of my experiences, and it's one that I've shared with many people, um, that often, you know, one sees something or hears something. This happens to me all the time at conferences, right? I'll be at a conference and I'll be hearing a, a brilliant paper, a brilliant presentation at a conference, and I'll be like, oh man, that was so good. Like, more people should see this. Like, they're, they're, this, this, this needs to, like, get circulated some how, but there's like no mechanism, right? There's no mechanism for that. So often things that I've seen at conferences, papers that I've heard at, at, at conferences, sometimes, you know, they might go on to get published, um, but that's a very, very small minority. Um, and often the presentation doesn't even lend itself well to like traditional, you know, publication in a scholarly journal or something like that. Um, and yet it is still very worthy of being circulated, of being published. So um, we uh, we want to cast a really wide net here uh, to say, uh, you know, because we, we we, there are so many people, so many brilliant and talented people um, who have really cool ideas or do really awesome things. Um, and we want there to be a place where folks can submit those and where we can, you know, showcase many of the wonderful ideas and uh, wonderful things going on com coming from you guys in our community. So uh, if you click on submit your work now, this is a form to, uh, you know, where you can just, you can submit anything, whatever it is. Um, we really are quite open uh, about this uh, and uh, look forward to, uh, to folks submitting. So just wanted to draw this to your attention. There have been a lot of times when we have, um, uh, when we have, talked about like paper topics and things and conference paper topics emerging out of our discussions, you know, when I've said things like, oh, this would be really fascinating to kind of pursue this particular argument or that particular argument or something. And I know that many of you get into discussions and debates on the um, uh, on the discussion boards. It might be really interesting to kind of take you know, something like a, you know, a thread that you've contributed to and really kind of put your, uh, put your thoughts together, uh, in a sort of a more cohesive form and, uh, you know, like one, you know, continuous form and submit it, right. You know, as a, as a presentation, as a kind of paper. Um, so I think that would be really, really cool. Anyway, there's lots of opportunities, I think, for things that have come, uh, from this, um, but uh, can you post other people's work with attribution? Probably I'd get their permission first uh, before I submitted it. But yeah, I mean, you could certainly encourage people to, uh, uh, to, to, to do that. But yeah. Um, um, yeah. And Matt, you're absolutely right. Matt says, the entire academy is a combination of fandoms that have been declared legitimate. Don't let your fear that your passion is less worthy than... Uh, uh, that, don't give in to your fear that your passion is less worthy than those with degrees. Yeah, no, I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, and uh, there's, 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 there's... Again, it's been my experience from the beginning. I remember, I remember having... There was a there was an interesting moment. Um, it was one of those moments when that was just really revelatory to me about how little many people in academia don't understand 
about like the world, <laughs> you know. Um, it was when I started my podcast. And of course, when I started my podcast, as uh, uh, many of you might know, I was still an untenured, tenure-track English professor down in Maryland. And, um, and of course, so like one of the big immediate questions in the, you know, year, two years after I started my podcast was like, okay, how is this going to relate to my tenure decision? Right. You know, because here I am like diverting all this time into my podcast, which I could have spent, you know, publishing and reputable journals and that kind of thing. Um, So, like, you know, was any of my scholarly work on my podcast going to count, you know, towards my tenure evaluation and such? And anyway, I remember having this conversation with my dean. And my dean says, um, well, like the uh, the advantage of participating in peer-reviewed publications is that, you know, your ideas are going to be challenged and sharpened by others, you know, who know the field really well, who know the field as well as you. If you're just, you know, lecturing to the general public, you're just kind of, you know, speaking out there and there's no, you know, you're not meeting that kind of resistance to your ideas. (laughs) And I'm sitting there and I'm like, have you ever talked to the general public. I'm like, I don't know, Mr. Dean, sir. That has not been my experience, let me tell you. Uh, I mean, the the way in which... It's, it's, something, it's just been my experience from the very beginning uh, of my podcast. Like, as soon as I began receiving any kind of communication from people who were listening to my podcast, um, I, it was clear that I was speaking to a group of my peers as far as, you know, our enthusiasm and even knowledge of Tolkien was concerned. I've never, you know, felt myself like superior to being like, <clears throat> I know, t- you don't know Tolkien, right? I know, t- just sit back and listen to me, the master. Like, I, it's like, that's ridiculous, right? Um, I have been so grateful for the contributions, challenges, corrections, debates that I've had with people. Um, I have never grown more as a scholar and as an intellectual than through my public broadcasts, uh, both here with you guys and in other things that I've done. I have found myself continually challenged, both you know, challenged to learn more and to grow and, and to be learning as I go from you guys, my listeners. So, um, anyway, it was, it was, uh, uh, that was just, as I say, a a moment when I was like, wow, okay. So like the ivory tower is kind of (laughs) real. Like that's, 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 that's actually, that's actually true. Um, but, um, anyway, that's, um, so yes, what I'm saying is, uh, I have enormous respect for the, you know, the knowledge uh, and uh, expertise of so many of you. Uh, and I know that, you know, you all have, you know, you all have things to contribute, lots of different things to contribute. Um, and by the way, don't ever let anybody convince you that in order to have something con- to contribute, it means that you have to have like thought of something or asked a question that nobody has ever asked before, come up with an answer that no one's ever said before. This is like the great delusion of the modern intellectual world, um, which I find enormously frustrating. Like it is just not true. Um, and it has led whole generations now of scholars to like spend their entire careers pursuing minutiae and trivia 
um, just for the sake of being able to say, I'm doing something nobody ever did before. And I just, I don't even consider that valuable. Like it's when I'm, if I'm assessing something that someone is saying about, you know, about, about a work, about anything, um, you know, but has anyone ever talked about this before? Or even has anyone suggested anything like this before? It's not even an evaluative question I ask. It's not even relevant. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, you know, that's, um, um, yeah, Drosnik says the entire scientific method is literally asking questions that have already been asked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> I've gotten onto this whole uh, diversion, challenging modern academia and such. And that was not my intention <laughs> when I started off here. The point is, I encourage everybody uh, to think about submitting, uh, as I think that there are um, there are lots of other things. Exactly, Arnaz. Just because something's been explored already doesn't mean there's nothing left to find. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and um, uh, and um, yeah, absolutely. Even and if you're, you know, if you're looking at a passage that's been examined before, asking a question of something that's been asked before, yeah, but it hasn't been asked by you, right? You, I can promise, you're gonna bring something different to this. That you know, it doesn't matter. Even if your conclusion agrees with things that other people have said, that itself is interesting, is important. So anyway. Whatever. You're right. You're right, Matt. And that's not that's not that I'm apologizing for challenging uh, modern academia. I know that's been my MO for a long time. I'm not taking that back. I'm just saying that's not what I came here to talk about tonight. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. Um, but so, uh, yeah, Mythgard Miscellany. That, that was the point. That was the point. Um, all right. Uh, other, uh, a couple other quick things, um, uh, uh, Mythmoot, don't forget about, um, uh, Mythmoot. We have, um, uh, the early bird pricing for Mythmoot, uh, in June, the end of June, um, uh, our big conference ends at the end of January. So we're, we're coming with, it was already extended, so it's definitely going to end at the end of January. So if you're thinking about joining us at Mythmoot, which you totally should think about joining us at Mythmoot, um, the uh, early bird pricing is going to be, uh, uh, ending for that soon. Uh, so I, uh, I definitely, um, uh, I definitely encourage you to do that because MythMood is so much fun. Been thinking about MythMood a lot over this past week and helping to plan some sessions that we're going to do and everything and just beginning to look forward to it again. Uh, MythMood is such a wonderful time. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. Aspen was said, uh, my friend Aspen, I told her about this. What would Tolkien think about his work being gone over paragraph by paragraph? So on the one hand, I certainly don't think that Tolkien... I mean, Tolkien was very humble. I don't think he would have been like, well, naturally, like, you know, they're only scratching the surface of my marvelous work. Like, it's, he wouldn't have anything, you know, any, you know, so in that level, he'd be like, well, you know, um, you know, would he say that I think that um, naturally everybody should, you know, spend two hours a, a week for their entire lives, like, discussing my book? Um, I don't think he'd have that kind of response. But at the same time, the kind of thing that we're doing, like, really... That, that 
you know, on a session by session basis, would he like what we're doing? Yeah. I'm not saying I think he'd always agree with us. Right. I'm sure he would like disagree wildly with a whole bunch of things that, you know, that I have said that we have said, um, he'd argue with us all the time, but would he enjoy this kind of analysis? Yeah. We see, you see him doing this all over the place. Right. I mean, he was always ready to like, you know, quote a passage and look at it carefully and see what it suggested. That's how he always answered questions um, when people asked him questions. Uh, you know, so like ask him, you know, what happened to the Entwives? And he won't say like, well, here's what I think might. Ha-. No, he will go back and he'll say, well, let's look at the text and see where it refers to it and what conclusions we can draw from that. Right. So um, he loved doing this kind of analysis to his own work. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but um Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He'd say we were going too fast, Strauss-Nick. It's possible. It's possible he would say that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether to spell out the letters W-O-B-H. Or is it just like one syllable? Like, womb. Or, and how do you do the H? I have questions about your username. But anyway, yes, I do agree with you that Tolkien was inviting this sort of discourse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Bjorning, I don't think the Inkling spent this long, right, on, um, uh, uh, on <laughs> discussing things, right? Or they never would have come in. They all have been dead, right, before they got through the Lord of the Rings, given the ages they were when they started. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, uh, I think that uh, this kind of close reading individually would uh, um, would would appeal in some ways. Um, yeah, <laughs> evil Doctor Cannon says Tolkien would approve of our likelihood of never finishing. Yeah, or rather, Evil Doctor Cannon, I would turn that around positively and say. Um, the mere fact that you are unlikely to finish is no deterrent from starting, right? Or even persevering therein. Um, but um, but also, and not to brag, um, but we've already persevered a good deal longer than Tolkien often did, right? If you look at the amount of time that he spent pursuing. And, and I mean, like, yeah, you can look at like the Silmarillion and say, oh, he spent like 40, 45 years writing that, but that's not really true, right? I mean, he wrote a whole bunch of things, started and stopped writing a whole bunch of things at various points, um, um, which is not exactly, not exactly the same thing. So I think we've... Uh, already shown some fair stamina here in our, uh, uh, here in our, here in our fifth year. Um, but you're right now. There you go. Evil Dr. Cannon. If we were to stop and say, wait, wait, wait a second. We need to go back to the beginning of fellowship and start over because we missed some stuff early, which we did, right? We missed some stuff earlier on. So we got to go back and start over. That would be quite like Tolkien, right? Quite like Tolkien. Um, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, we do need to go back, and you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Seven. Um, uh, we and and I don't see any reason not to. I mean, I think it would be kind of fun, wouldn't it, um, to have the um, um, the very um, like at the very end of our discussion be uh, the long expected party, basically. Um, yeah, and concerning hobbits, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we can we can definitely go back uh, and end there uh, at the beginning. Now, David Michael Roberts on Twitch, I totally agree with you that um, 
Uh, he says, I, somehow I don't think that Dyson would have wanted to, that is, go into this much detail in the Inklings meetings. And I certainly agree. Uh, from everything, from, from all of the records, uh, Dyson would have uh, quite objected uh, to discussing the Lord of the Rings at this pace. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Trifle, we did go too fast at the beginning of The Shadow of the Past, but it was it was in... Um, it was in Gandalf's conversation with Frodo um, that we started, we made the shift. Um, it would be interesting. Somebody, yeah, well, maybe in the course of like reviewing earlier things for the web project, somebody could find this. I wonder, what was the last paragraph we skipped? Like, when exactly? Did we start going sentence by sentence, skipping nothing? I, my memory is that it is somewhere around the backstory of the ring. Like, in Eregion, you know, remember that sentence um, uh, when Gandalf starts giving the backstory? Somewhere around there. I, I mean, we did do the whole Bilbo-Gandalf confrontation passage at the end of chapter one, but that was only just one part of chapter one that we did that on. But anyway... Um, uh, no, no, Fort Thon- it was definitely, it was before the end of chapter two, uh, that we started. I know the, 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 most of that, um, most of the conversation between Frodo and Gandalf was, and then chapter three and full. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was, it was, uh, at most halfway through. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's true. I might still have been rushing. Anyway, let us, speaking of rushing, or not rushing, let us, uh, uh, let us move forward. Stanza five. Well, as before, let's reread stanzas one through four, and then look at stanza five, uh, to make sure that all of our expectations and our sense of the shape and patterns are clear in our minds as we approach stanza five. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. Okay, so we remember the patterns there, how the pattern has been shifting, right? We, of course, recall... Oops, going forward, not backwards. We recall that perfect symmetrical shape between one and two, how that breaks down between three and four. Um, But we saw a couple other interesting shifts there. Um, I was blown away by the conclusion that we kind of came to that I hadn't suspected before about the hopefulness of stanza four, um, uh, about, uh, his looking towards the, you know, and, and that kind of hinged upon the reading of the tense, right? I have never seen the way that he shifts back to the present perfect there, like he was speaking in at the very first stanza. Um, No longer just speaking about the negatives in the future, right? Not, he's, you know, how he shifts that stanza, not to be about what I will never see, but instead that I have never seen. And then speaking of that 
um, you know, we were speaking of, of, of Estelle, of hope, right? Um, the Estelle that in every wood and every spring there is a different green, which sort of hope and confidence um, seems to be sort of augmented by the idea, the possibility of reading stanza three in the kind of apocalyptic way, um, almost even fearful way that we were discussing before. Um, that is thinking about the possibility of um, how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I will ever see, or maybe anybody will ever see, right? What if winter comes and spring does not come after? What if, what if Sauron wins, right? Is one potential reading lying behind that, uh, behind that stanza? And if it does lie behind that stanza, then it would seem to be redressed in a sense in stanza four here, right? By, uh, this contemplation of, uh, the future, the future that will surely come, um, the spring, uh, the new greens uh, that will come new, not only in the sense of new from spring, you know, new in the spring from winter, but also new in the sense of um, uh, ever new, right? New every year um, in every wood and every spring, there is a different green. Um, now, stanza five. So stanza five, we have reason to think that we, although the exact symmetry thing that we saw, or nearly exact symmetry thing, that we saw happening in stanzas one and two did not happen again in stanzas three and four. We did not get exactly that same level of correspondence at all. Um, yet as we approach stanzas five and six, we certainly should be wondering, right, are we going to see that again? Um, are we going to return to something like that? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and if not, how is this, um, you know, here is where we're beginning to get towards the end of the poem. And thus we can begin to be looking at not only the shape and structure of the individual stanzas, but how those themselves contribute to the shape of the overall whole, uh, of the poem and beginning of stanza five, I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Okay. As before, rhythm first. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Once again, very regular I ams, right? Once uh, he is not deviating, from that pattern which has been most consistent throughout the entire poem, um, the very, very regular uh, sound pattern, right? I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Almost perfect again. Um, and there isn't even that same kind last time I spent a long time trying to figure out, and I think we finally figured it out that because it's about the consonants, right? Um, the, uh, the way in which every wood in every spring, there is a different green doesn't change, doesn't deviate from that rhythm, but seems to drag at it, right? Seems to, uh, to affect the flow, even though it doesn't actually change the rhythm. And, um, I think we can see 
that in this stanza, or we can hear rather, that in this stanza, we don't get that, right? Um, we don't get that. I don't, I don't hear, I don't think I hear any kind of disruption. Let me do it again. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. No, I don't hear, um, again, perfectly regular, but I don't hear any of that sort of resistance we were pushing through in stanza four, or even that kind of like dilation, you know, that kind of distortion almost of like meadow flowers and butterflies that I was talking about before. Um, yeah. Uh, notice again the vast preponderance of monosyllables throughout the stanza, right? Um, we have exactly three two-syllable words in this whole stanza, right? Beside people and people, right? Um, no, never. Sorry, never. Forgot about never. Four. Four. We got never, which is an important one, actually, right? Um, okay, so that's... Uh, so that's interesting, but we don't get, um, um, I think it's one reason why it seems even more smooth. The sound seems even more smooth. Again, notice the pattern here as we were looking at before. I sit, which we've seen before, um, beside the fire and think of people long ago. Um, you know, the fire and think of people. Um, notice again how the unstressed syllables are, you know, we've got a, you know, an article, a, con a, a conjunction, a preposition, right? Again, once again, it's, if you want to make perfect iams, using monosyllables like this is a really easy way to do that, right? Well, not that it's ever easy, but it's, uh, uh, it makes it a little bit simpler. Um, um, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Um, okay. Bigger picture rhythms. The lines. What do we notice about the lines? What do we notice about the lines? I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago. And people who will see a world that I shall never know. What's the pattern and what's it most like? Again, this is stanza five, right? So we've had a bunch of different sort of structural patterns, structure, you know, sort of rhythmic, uh, sort of syntactic shapes, right, uh, in the poem so far. We do get enjambment, draw snake, between lines one and two and between lines two and three. Right, those clearly flow together. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Yes. So, enjambment between lines one and two with a break in the middle, and a break with a comma, which absolutely should be bringing us back to the first two stanzas. Right? That's just how those two worked. Um, in fact, you'll remember that that's one of the shapes that we first established, right? We have two, there's a you know, semicolon at the end, right? So we've got two lines in jammed, comma, two lines in jammed, semicolon, two lines in jammed, comma, two lines in jammed, period, 
right? Uh, and the semicolon, of course, is one of the things that sort of points to how closely linked together stanzas one and two are, right? Um, so we don't get that in stanza five, but we do get that same pattern. Um, and remember, we deviated from it in stanza three with all enjambment, right? Nothing not enjammed there in stanza, in stanza three. And then in stanza four, we had a harder stop in the middle with that colon, for still there are so many things that I have never seen, colon, such as, right? And then instead of getting a list, we get in every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. Um, so that doesn't do kind of what we might expect it to do, perhaps. Um, this is, again, much more like you'll remember what did the kind of comma, what, what did the comma mean, right, in those first, like how did it, what was it accomplishing, apart from telling us to breathe, right, telling us to break there at the end of the second line. Um, well, what we were seeing is that it was introducing, it was signaling to us that there was a series of things, right? I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, comma, of meadow flowers, right? I think of this, of that, and that in this. Also of this, in that, with that, and that, right? That's the logic of the first two stanzas, right? It's, um, it's lists, right? All of which goes back to, I sit beside the fire and think, this is what I'm sitting beside in the fire and thinking about, right? Um, and then we noticed how that shifted in stanzas three and four, but in stanza five, we return to a similar, not identical, but a similar kind of logical structure that the rhythm sets us up for, right? I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago. So we're starting with the of again, which is important, right? Of people long ago, comma. The similarity is that we are, um, we are adding a thing, right? I sit beside the fire and think of this and that, Right? So in that way, it is like the flow of stanza one. But it's also different from it because we don't get another of. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, Blah the Inspire is exactly right. Um, the function of and in the third line is a little different. Yes, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. So he could have said of people long ago, of people who will see a world that I shall never know. Um, except he can't. Why can't he? Why can't he say of there? If he said of there, well, then he can't put a period, right? If it's going to be a list, it would have to, it would have to carry on, right? That I, that we need more items to the list. He had that before, right? Because of the way that stanzas one and two were combined together. We had of this, of that, and that, of this, Right of this and that, right with this, um, so it was uh, it was it introduced a larger group. Right here, he's still ending this stanza with a period. It is not like stanza one in that way. Right, so it is a list. Right, we do have the stanza divided into two halves, which we did not get 
in stanza three, right? But look at this. Let's let's go back and and compare it to stanza three because I think this 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 really kind of sets it off, right? Look back to stanza three, and remember how that kept accumulating subordination, right? I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see, right? Uh, it's all one idea continually rolling and continually just adding subordination, right? There's only one thing that he's thinking of. It takes a while to explain what it is, right? How the world will be under this condition, you know, under that other condition explained in this way, right? I mean, that's the, the when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. This continual clarification of just the one idea of how the world will be. We'll look back at stanza five, I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. We get the subordination again in, stan- in, in lines three and four, right? And people who will see a world, which world? The world that I shall never know, right? But we don't have the continuous subordination. It's not about one thing. It's about two things, right? This stanza is divided in half, Right? of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Those are the two, there are two things that he's thinking of in this stanza, right? And so we can hear that. Like, we're made to feel that, even if you don't process it, right? Um, even if you don't process it, you, f- you hear it, right? The poem makes you feel it. That comma at the beginning, um, which is what makes it work flow so differently, then stanza three makes you pause, makes you realize that it's um, uh, that it's doubled there. Um, okay. Um, yeah, Gildala and I agree. Repeating of makes it sound like they're in the same group. Yeah, I think that that that's a good way. That's a good way of uh, uh, of saying it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it clearly is um, two different groups of people here. Um, Now, what else? Other sound patterns. I guess we could think about rhyme. We were noticing last time in stanza four that we had reached a kind of climax, right? There's the dominant rhyme, um, which has been both repeated but also played with throughout, right? We, you know, the line two, line four rhyme, seen, been, were, hair, so it gets weak in stanza two, will be, ever see, B and C, okay, clearer, and not only clearer, but repeating. Seen and being and B and C is not only just as strong, it's the same rhyme in different verb forms, right? Same words. And then seen and green, right? So we take that seeing concept, which has been part of the core rhyme of now three out of four stanzas, right? But instead of combining it with being, as he's combined it before, now he combines seen with green, right? That hoped for, trusted in future uh, that we were looking at last time. But, of course, we were also noticing that um, 
there was this other kind of rhyming thing. Stanza one didn't have any um, other rhyme. Like there was like thinking butterflies. Nothing. N- n- those aren't even nodding acquaintances, right? Um, but then we noticed in the second stanza we had gossamer and that there were, which is a strong rhyme and the more conspicuous because of the weakness of the main rhyme, right? Um, uh, he has proven he knows how to make a rhyme for the word were, right? Um, he could have made another one uh, in that last line if he had chosen to, but he didn't choose to, right? So we have the weakened central rhyme and the emergence of this other internal rhyme, right? Between one and two, internally binding up the gossamer in autumns that there were, that autumn imagery in there. In stanza three, we had the return of think, but instead, so just as we had the return of B and C, which sounds like I'm saying the letters like you say a rhyme scheme, like the B rhyme and the C rhyme. No, I'm, I'm talking about the words B E and S E E, right? We've got the return of B and C uh, as the primary rhyme. And we also have the return of think, of course, as he's repeating that first line. But this time, instead of having the word think floating out there totally unconnected with the end of line three, as in butterflies, he instead pairs it with spring which is not a rhyme, but it's a lot closer, right? All of a sudden it starts to sound close. Think spring. Um, they're um, uh, first cousins, right, in some ways, right? We, we get that I-N sound in the middle, um, which links them together, but they still don't rhyme, but they're leaning in that direction, which is interesting, because then in stanza four, when we have seen in green, that equally strong rhyme in two and four, we have, as I said, the pinnacle, right? We've got things and spring. Still not a rhyme. And again, I would say, I would go so far as to say deliberately close, but not quite, right? Again, he could have contrived to rhyme those perfectly if he'd wanted to, right? But he doesn't. He's got things, plural, and spring, singular, so that they are very close to a strong, perfect rhyme, and yet not quite at a strong, perfect rhyme. Um, what do we get in stanza four? We get a strong rhyme in lines two and four again, right? Just as we've gotten in three quarters of the stanzas so far, except for stanza two, where we had that were and hair thing. Um, but the rhyme is different. That might seem obvious. I mean, I, I mean, it is obvious. Um, that might seem really simple, but it f- now that we've had C, you know, seen being C, B, well, I guess it was the other way around. Seen being B, C, right? And then seen green. I don't know about you, but my ear was ready for an E rhyme there, Right. And we didn't get it. We get an O rhyme instead, right? Um, people long ago that I shall never know. Um, strong rhyme, right? So the sound of it is just as satisfying. Um, but it's different. And those internal rhymes, we get think again, right? Our third return of think. Think was paired with butterflies the first time. It was paired with... Um, what was it paired with spring, right? Spring the second time, right? Think butterflies, 
Think spring. Now think world. And arguably that's even further from a rhyme than spring and butterflies was, right? We've turned away from the that secondary rhyme now entirely, right? Um, interesting. Yeah, Blad the Inspirer says, looking at the rhymes in the second and fourth lines, it seems like the stanzas can be separated into two sound groups. One, three, and four, that is the C, B, C, and green ones, and two, five, and six. Yeah, yeah, certainly five and six. Two just seems to me to kind of stand out in this way. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know yet what to do with that observation, with the, our departure from ease, right? I mean, again, my ear now associates, after four stanzas, my ear associates a perfect strong rhyme there in lines two and four with that E sound. Indeed, with the word C in particular, right? Um, the word see has been involved everywhere, and the linking of the word seen with the word green in stanza four seems quite significant under the circumstances, right? Um, but um, the shift to a go and no seems important. And here's the other thing that makes it seem even more important to me. Look at that last line, right? That I shall never know. And look at line two of stanza four, that I have never seen, right? It's almost a a perfect repetition, right? The I have never, I shall never know seen, right? So... We talked about how that last line is shifting from scene, you know, from the E sound to the O sound. That's because he's replacing that idea of seeing with this idea of knowing. Right? And you think about there's a there's a reason that see has been an important rhyming word, right? Indeed, one could say that that see, the word see has been one of the sort of thematic dominant words of this entire poem, right? I mean, what are the most important words? First of all, always you always got to pay attention to verbs, right? Verbs are almost always important. No, verbs are always important, without exception, right? Verbs are what happens. Like, verbs are what make a sentence a sentence. So, um, uh, definitely, you always got to pay attention to the verbs. And sitting is important, but thinking, right? Um... I sit beside the fire and think. So we've got think, think, think. This is our third repetition of think. Thinking is one of the dominant ideas of this poem, right? Um, One crude way to summarize this poem would be the poem about what Bilbo is thinking about, right? That's what he claims to be describing. I sit beside the fire and think, he says three different times, starting three different pairs of stanzas in order to tell us what he's thinking about, right? But notice again, within that context, right, um, of all of this thinking that's going on, um, he's been focusing on seeing. 
I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about what he has witnessed. And remember how this fits in with our readings of especially those first two stanzas where his the verbs that he uses and the way that he describes these things he's not thinking about himself right he's not thinking he's not the protagonist remember we said he's um it's distant from him he's just thinking about the summers that have been and autumns that there were right it's the summers and the autumns that are important the fact that he was there to see them is an incidental and possibly not very important element right um so it keeps coming back to what he has seen. That's been his role. I mean, he's thinking about it, but what he's thinking about, his role within the frame of his thought, right, is he's not thinking about anything that he's done. He's thinking about what he's seen, including when he shifts in stanza three to the future, right? What is he thinking about in stanza three? How the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. So the sea comes, the seeing comes back into it, right? This spring that will not be witnessed by him, right? In the way that the summer and the autumn of the uh, first two stanzas were at least witnessed by him, experienced by him, even though he wasn't like responsible to them or whatever, right? Um, He continues the I have never seen thing in stanza four. Right, thinking about that, it, this causes him to uh, think more about the things that he has never seen, and possibly will never see, or maybe in the more hopeful reading that we had last week, have not seen yet. Right, um, in every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. And notice again the link between seen and green, that core rhyme of that stanza is once more gives the springs in question, right? Um, the future springs, this infinite stream of future springs that will come in every wood, in every spring, um, always with a new color and a new freshness. Once again, they're existing on their own, right? Um, they, they just are. The green is, in, you know, as we, when we're looking at the syntactic structure of that, saying what's the subject and the verb, right? The the green is. Um, that's what he's. That's what he hasn't seen. What he's thinking about. What he hasn't seen, right? But it's all been. It's still. Still, the, the kind of question, right? Is like uh, he's still within the frame of his thought. He's still been the protagonist, not the protagonist. He's still been the the, the observer. Right um, of this of these seasons and the, of the world and of the seasons. Now, what's happened in the stands? So that seeing, that seeing, it has been. C has been that core rhyme. That's why that E sound is so important, right? It's not only that sound. The sound is a hint, and this, by the way, is why I always start with the sounds, right? Because um, did you ever ask that question, or may? Uh, you might have asked this question in a couple different ways. Maybe you were writing an English paper at some point and you were like, I think I see this, right? I think I can see how to talk about that. I, you know, I, I have this reading of this, but, you know, but is this just BS? Am I just making this up? Right. Is, is it just me? Like, I don't know if you've ever asked that question, right? Maybe you didn't care. like, as long as like your teacher would swallow it, who cares? But, um, but it, it, you know, when you start doing this stuff for a living, you start asking that question, right? Like, okay, I've got this cool reading, right? I think that this poem is doing something awesome, but is it just me? Am I just being clever, 
right? Like, am, am I just like imposing upon this, you know, this poem something which is merely a construct of my own imagination? And like, that's always a risk, right? Um, one always can end up doing that. So this is one of the primary reasons why when we've been talking about this poem and we t when we talk about other poems, um, uh, yeah, Fourth Thomas says we used to have meta arguments about this in English class all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Fourth Thomas, I will say, long before, <laughs> long before I achieved the level of doubt or humility required to ask that question of myself, I began arrogantly asking it of my English teachers, right? I mean, I clearly remember sitting in 10th grade English class uh, saying, she's just making this up. This is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I... I Remember the day on which uh, I was saying that um, in 10th grade English class. And, uh, and then, of course, again, later on, one uh, comes to the horrible conclusion that one can apply that same question to one's own readings as well. Anyway, the point is, um, uh, the point is, this is why I always start with sounds, right? Um, when, if you can get in your ear the sound patterns of the poem. Um, like what we were just, the conclusion we were just drawing about the way in which stanza five is so importantly divided in half, right? With those two groups, like the, the difference between the people long ago and the people who will see a world, right? Um, now that's a, a fairly obvious thing. I'm saying that that's some kind of like deep reading of that uh, you know, of this stanza, um, yeah, he's thinking about two different groups of people there, right? But notice how that fits, how well that clicks with this. Like, again, your ear tells you, yeah, duh. <laughs> you need to put a break between the people long ago and the people who will see a world that I shall never know, right? Um, you, like, your ear will tell you in that sense that that reading is right. Sort of, right? Um, or at least might lead you to be more confident in it. That's why I always like to start with this kind of thing. So again, coming back to this. So this is why, um, and also sometimes your ear will suggest, will just draw things to your notice that you might not have noticed. So like, for instance, um, I would very likely, if he didn't use it in a rhyming word, it probably, like, repeatedly in a rhyming word, it probably would have taken me a long time to notice what I was just describing, that pattern of seeing and how important seeing is in the first four stanzas, right? Uh, within the framework of the thinking. Um, like, saying that, I feel pretty confident in that reading, that that's, that's clearly the shape, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the mental shape uh, of this poem. Um, but I might not have noticed it. And in any case, having noticed it, I feel very confident in it, given the, the sound shape, right? Given the fact not only, not only is that word repeated, it's repeated in rhyming couplets. And not only is it repeated in rhyming couplets, but those same rhyming couplets are being repeated. Like, again, that, that scene, bean, b, c, scene, green, it's like that's obviously important, right? That has got to be like there's a there's a progression there, um, like those six words on their own um, point towards a shape, right? That we can begin to see, that we can begin to feel. Um, so, um, 
uh, yeah. Okay. And now we have an equally strong rhyme, but it's for the first time not C and B. And it has nothing to do with seeing. Instead, it has to do with knowing. And just in case we miss the shift or our ear does not pick up on it, we can see the repeated pattern, which emphasizes it. That shift from I have never seen to I shall never know. Um, and no is the strong word. No, ago. And thinking about that pair of words, where does that pair of words push us? Ago, no. Well, ago puts us in a familiar place, right? Because we've, we've been, we lived in ago for uh, at least two stanzas, right? Um, he was in the past thinking about like um, summers that have been and autumns that there were, those are both ago, right? Um, that framework of past time, of thinking about the world as it was, the world that he has seen, right? That he has observed, um, but that which was. The shift then comes in stanza three when he asks us to look into, when he's, when he tells us he's thinking about the future, how the world will be, right? Now, the seeing still comes in, right? Without a spring that I shall ever see, right? Um, and then, of course, in the four, he continues thinking about the future in one sense, right? Um, and yet we notice that subtle shift of tenses where he was not saying shall never in stanza four. He was saying I have never seen, um, but we had the scene and then we had the green, which is the stuff that he hasn't seen yet um, and may not see, perhaps. Um, OK, but anyway, so I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago. On the one hand, that O sound is new. This is <clears throat> an innovation uh, from an aural standpoint, right? It's a new sound um, that we haven't rested on like this before. And so it it on the one hand, tips us off that something has changed, right? But at the same time, the subject matter is not different. Well, the subject matter is different, but the frame isn't different. Again, we've been thinking about ago. We spent at least two solid stanzas thinking about long ago, right? That which was. There is a shift that it's people that we're thinking about now instead of seasons, Right. It was all very impersonal before, except in as much as he was personifying the seasons themselves, which was not all that much. Um, not very strongly anyway. OK, fine. But that last line that I shall never know. That's what we were being set up for by that unexpected O rhyme. Right. Um, I mean. I sit beside the fire and think of people like if you just if you'd read the poem. Right. Stanzas one through four and then read the first line and a half of stanza five. Right. I sit beside the fire and think of people and ask me to guess how the line ended. I would have said I have seen or something like that. Right. Uh, people I can see or, <laughs> or whatever. Like that's that's what that that thinking always led to seeing before. Uh, always. And um, uh one way or another, either immediately or eventually, um, that is either in line two or in line four, right, is in stanzas one and in stanza three. Um, but instead we get people long ago and people who will see a world once again. It, it's, it's like a setup. 
people who will see a world. We've gotten this before. Ah, I did it again. We've gotten this before. Um, of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see, right? We've gotten the, you know, and people who will see a world that I shall never see. I mean, like, that's what we expect, right? You know, that um, e- surely either line two or line four has to end in seeing, right? But it's not ending in seeing. It's ending in knowing that I shall never know. What does that mean, do you think? What does that suggest? Um, yeah, Bjorn in Exile says, uh, uh, shift from his personal perception to awareness of others. Um, good, yeah, some others have uh, commented, and I'm sorry, I'm, I know I'm missing a bunch of comments. Uh, he's moving from self-regard to regard of the whole story. Mm, yes. Mostly. The one correct, well, no correction. The one way I differ from that is that, remember, he was never exactly talking about self-regard in the early stanzas. I mean, it was never, he, he was never the object, right? Um, he was a subject, but he was never really the object. Like, um, the word that's never been used is me, <laughs> right? Um, um, my, we get my once with my hair but we've never gotten me. Um, that is to say, he's never been the object of the verb, right? Um, it's all, it's, it's been about what he's seen, but the focus has been not on himself, right? But on what he's seen. So in a sense, you could say he's kind of related similarly. Um, he's focusing on the world that I shall never know. You could say a world I shall never know, a world how the world will be, right? When winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. Similar. Similar ideas. Yes. Looking towards a future without him in it, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. As Bjarne Sonner says, and as usual, Bjarne Sonner knows how to speak about this stuff with very much more precision than I do. Uh, uh, Bjarne Sonner says, semantically, he's been the experiencer, not even the agent. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, then now that I shall never know. Um, what is the difference? That there is a shift. Our ears tell us a go and no. What is the significance of that shift? I'm not sure I see it yet. Well, let's keep looking at a couple other things. First, um, alliteration. We've skipped alliter- We've skipped alliteration. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Oh, hang on a second. How do we miss that? There is seeing. Right smack. We still get to see. Right? Sit beside has never yet failed to lead to see. See, once I... And and notice... When did I notice that? 
as soon as I asked the question about the consonants, right? Consonants led me right to it, right? Sitting beside always leads to seeing. But yeah, it's a big difference, right? Um, he's not the one seeing. It's people, other people, who are seeing there. That's, that's true. That's true. But, um, but it's still there, and we can hear it in that the way in which sit beside, that repetition of the S's on the stressed syllable in line one, which we've heard now three times, right? Um, and we got a version of it. Remember, we were looking in stanza four with still so many things. Um, which also leads to seeing, right? And in that case, to spring as well. Um, Okay, so we got the S's, which led there. What else do you notice? Alliteration, what else do you notice? Yes, drow snake, never know. That's really important. And that one is, is, is sneaky, right? It's sneaky for all you poor people who are visual learners instead of audio learners. Um... And I don't mean you're... I'm sorry. I, 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 it's, I'm sorry. I'm not saying you're poor. Uh, it's just there are some things that are going to be harder. And this is one of them, right? Because you might look at that last line and not even notice the alliteration, right? Um, but if you're an audio person, you can't miss it. That I shall never know. Um, it's a strong alliteration to end with. Um, and hang on a second... Have we gotten that yet? Nope. We haven't. Um, we haven't. Um, we've gotten Morning Mist and Silver Sun. We got all those W's in the middle of stanza three. We had those really interesting middle of the word alliteration things going on with never, every, every different in stanza four. But we've certainly never ended a stanza with an alliterative couplet, if I could coin that phrase, which is kind of awkward and not really accurate, but maybe I shouldn't use couplet. Duplet? I don't know. Anyway, two alliterating words in a row. Pair. How about pair? Fourth thomas, I like that. Yeah. An alliterative pair that I shall never know. Um, strong ending of the stanza, right? Um, <laughs> it's funny. Somebody just did the pointing up um, emoji to Fourth Dauntless's comment, and I feel like that's exactly what the alliteration does right there. It puts the like pointy up finger, like, pay attention to that, to the no. Right, and what it, what does it do? It emphasizes the no, never no, um, which rhymes strongly with the ago, which is that new rhyming sound. Um, but um, uh, okay. Um, anyway, what else? Alliteration. What else? What else do you notice? Well, there's a really obvious one, which is so obvious that you're probably shy about pointing, uh, pointing it out. 
but that's yeah the repetition of people right on the one hand it's like cheating right because it's the same word but it's particularly conspicuous Drowsnake, for exactly the reason that you're pointing out because each the word people has it's a it's a twofer right two p's each right so by repeating the word people twice he gets four explosive p sounds uh in those central two lines of people long ago and people who will see a world um the and this is not normal have we gotten repetition like that like direct word repetition I don't think we have. Nope. Not in the same stanza, I mean. No. No, I don't think we have. Um, within... Okay, every, every. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Blood. I'd forgotten about that. Every, every. That was the closest that we got. Good. Good. Yeah, Dan was just pointing that out, too. Yep. Okay, every, every. And we were talking about how significant that was, right? Um, and notice... There's a um, there's a similar um, it has a s- well, no I'm trying to say this sentence carefully similarly it has a strong oral effect right um, I was trying to be careful there because I didn't want to say it had a similar effect because it doesn't have a similar effect the effect of people and people is quite different from the the effect of every and every in line three of stanza four. Um, it's not the same effect by by any means, I think, um, but it is similar in that it has a strong effect on the sound shape of that stanza. Um, I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Um, there's a b in beside in line one. I'm just like I'm I'm thinking about labials. I'm thinking about those explosive consonants, right? Um, B, beside, is a labial consonant as well, but it's on an unstressed syllable. It's much softer than people. Um, And that's interesting. Yeah. Um, People. People who will see a world. Um, and yeah, uh, let's look at that. Bjorning, that's a great question. Apart from spring, I don't think we've gotten any P's in the entire poem to this point. Spring. Spring, spring. The only two P's, I think. Only two P's in the poem. Um, the people long ago. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Rachel, uh, on YouTube, I agree with you. The, um, the peas, the explosiveness of the peas that make those two peoples jump out would make even one of the peoples jump out. Right. Um, and doubly, right, when there are the two of them right there, all of those four Ps, right? Um, 
it is made the more conspicuous by the fact that, as Rachel was pointing out, um, there haven't been people in the poem at all to this point. This has not been a poem that's been very interested in people, really, at all, right? Um, I sit beside the fire and think of people is a shift in topic, right? Um, A shift really in the whole focus of the poem, really. Um, Yeah. (laughs) As goes on when I'm talking about in the whole poem to this point, uh, it is uh, hard not to pay attention to the P's that I'm using in talking about it, and yet the poem itself um, uh, does not uh, not do that. Um, So... Bjorning, I don't consider spring emphasized by the explosive consonant because it's not at the beginning. To get the to really get the power and punch of the P, it really has to be at the beginning of the word, right? Spring, the sp, you know, the the P is softer because it's got that sibilant before it, right? Spring, um, you just kind of. You just kind of uh, trip into it. Yeah, because it's not aspirated in the same way. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, and But when you've got P at the beginning of a word like that, um, it really, it really, it really smacks you in the face <laughs> like that. And then you need to double it within the word and then double it line to line. Um, very, uh, very strong. Okay. So... We definitely need to pay attention to that. Now, I want to come back to the other... Um, right, Graham says, the bane of sound engineers everywhere. Exactly, right? Yeah, you don't, have to, you don't have to tell anybody who's ever been a sound engineer about how explosive the P is, right? Um, I mean, like, the letter P... You know those, um, uh, uh, those podcasters who have, like, the little screen that's attached to their microphone between them and their microphone? That's like the, the letter P shield, Right? Uh, almost, almost entirely, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's uh, that's that's just what it, I avoid this by having my microphone not straight in front of my face. It's off to the side a little bit, so that it doesn't get the full force of the uh, of the explosive peas. Um, they're called pop filters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, which is apt, I think, as pop is exactly what it's, uh, what it's trying to control. Um, but, um, yeah, anyway, so, right, okay. I want to come back to, what was it, um, Fourth Dauntless, I think, was, um, talking about this a while back. I think it was. Other, when I was asked, yes, it was Fourth Dauntless. Um, other alliteration observations, um, I was noting this too. The W's come back. Um, who will see a world? It is much weaker. We don't get uh, the flood of W's we got in stanza three, right? World will be when winter comes without, right? World will win winter without. We got those five W's there in those two lines, indeed. We were saying how we got, noticing how we got five strong w 
sounds in seven words right there in those middle of the two lines. Like I was really, I was really, really dominant. And I agree. Who doesn't count? Who doesn't, uh, doesn't, um, doesn't, doesn't really fit. Will world comes back and we got will and world. Those were two of our five before, and it is in line three. So it, it is similarly in the middle of the stanza, like it was in stanza three. Um, and given that we've, you know, we, we are, the first, the repetition of the initial line, I sit beside the fire and think, um, should prompt us to kind of put one, three, and five together and do that kind of comparison. So there's, there's reasons that we should notice that. But I agree, it's, it's, it's much weaker. It's like an echo of the W's in, uh, in stanza, um, stanza three, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about the L sounds? What do you think about the L sounds? Ray was talking about the L's. Rachel on YouTube was talking about the L's. Um, we only get one initial L with long ago, right? Um, but I think that they're right to say that we get, although long ago is the only initial L, that L sound does seem to become important as we move through lines three and four, right? Of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. The long ago will world shall um, does feel important there. Um, <clears throat> will and shall, of course, are... Um, um, yeah, good. Blod points out that um, long is also the only time that L, the L sound is on an uh, uh, is on a stressed syllable. Um, yeah, well, indeed, the other three L's are all terminal. I mean, world. Technically, there's a D at the end, right? But it's 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 the sound at the, you know. So it's it's it you know it's combined with the D, um, but it um, uh, it um, it's I mean still that's coming at the end, right? That's still the end, the, the, uh, the, the, the end game of that particular world. Um, yeah. <laughs> Amethorn says L was my speech therapy world in the second grade. Yeah. It's still my speech therapy, uh, uh, letter. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess the thing that I would say is that will and shall, I mean, Will and shall are practically synonyms um, that they should get linked makes a certain amount of sense, right? Um, the connection of will, shall, and long ago is a kind of an interesting one, right? As long ago is pointing into the past and will and shall are both pointing into the future. And then ironically... Um, You've got the L at the beginning of the past one and the L's at the end of the future words, right? Um, and if that's a pattern, world fits into the future, which makes sense because it is the world that he shall never know, right? Um, so we've got um, uh, L's at the end, future, L at the beginning, past, Um I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting. Yeah. 
Um, I, I don't know what to make of that necessarily. I don't know that that would necessarily work all, you know, that he'd be adopting that as a really stable pattern. Um, but that's the pattern that I see when I'm looking at the L's here. Okay. Um, yeah, both of them are away from the present, JJ, for sure. Um, yeah. And Blood, I agree. That shall in the last line is conspicuous because it avoids the W sound, right? Think of how different that would have been. People who will see a world that I will never know. We'd have a return of the W's with a good deal more emphasis, right? Will, world, will, never know. Right? That alliterative pattern would have been very interesting and very strong, right? But he leaves it behind. He chooses shall instead. So we have the connection with will on the L's, but he could have just used the same word, right? Um, yeah. Um, okay. So many questions still. Among my questions are will and shall. Well, let's, we're there. Let's just think about that one first. Will and shall. Why? Why? Why will and shall? I shall never know. Do you know the difference between will and shall? This is arguably an important difference, especially at this part of the Lord of the Rings. Um... Yes, praise. That's exactly, um, exactly right. Gildalwin, uh, praise says, will refers to intent. Now equals simple future. I will equals volition. Yes. Um, both of them are future tense. Both of them are referring to a, it's like indicative future, right? This is a thing that is going to happen in the future. Like, it's, it's not that, like, one of them is more diffident, like, this might happen, but this is definite. Like, it's, th there's no difference there, necessarily. Um, but shall is a statement of simple future. Like, this thing is, this is the thing that is going to happen. Will involves the question of, um, um, the question of volition. And I think it does, um... I think it does hold up in the rest of Tolkien's writing. This is something, if we had the time, we should do a longitudinal study of, I think, the use of will and of shall. And I wouldn't think that he would have to use it consistently in this way 100% of the time to convince me that it was important. But I think we can already see... Um, there's a big difference, I would argue, between Frodo saying, I will take the ring, and Frodo saying, I shall take the ring. I think it is important. I think that Elrond would say that it was important that Frodo says, I will take the ring. Um, and I think there are other examples like that. Now, 
one can always cherry pick examples, so um, it's not proof. But I think that it, um, my suspicion is that if we did in fact do a longitudinal study, we would find that um, there was a there was a correlation there. Um, Rowan, I think shall might feel conditional to you because it rhymes with. First of all, we don't use shall very much. I mean, in in modern English, and I'm I yes, I am drawing a distinction between Tolkien's English and modern English. Um, in modern English. Uh, especially in American modern English, at least I should say, we don't use the word shall much at all. Um, um, so will has come to just basically mean future. We use, uh, that's, um, it's just future in, in all ways. Um, but in the older, um, uh, in the older usage, um, it is, uh, it is simple future. So I think, I think it feels conditional because it rhymes with, you know, like should is conditional, right? Um, and it starts with an SH and we don't use it that often, but, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that's interesting. Gil Dalawin. I think that you are right. The person of the verb makes a big difference. That is, when you're speaking the first person, to say, I will or I shall, the one speaks to volition and the other does not. So, um, but when you're speaking in the th second or third person, right, and you say, you will do this, or you shall do this, um, Gil Dalawin was saying that um, uh, will would be the regular future, whereas shall would be a kind of imperative. Um, sort of, but you could see how that would be, right? Um, when you're dictating... Look, anytime you're speaking not in the first person, when you're speaking to anybody else in the indicative future, you're taking risks, right? I mean, you're speaking prophecy here. Um, uh, you will is a statement somebody can argue with. You will do that. No, I won't. Right? Um, and when somebody says, you will do this, and you say, I will not do that, you're talking about your will. Right? Um, what you're talking about is not what is going to occur. What you're talking about is what your will is set to do. Right? Someone else trying to dictate your will, and you're saying, actually, no. Um, whereas if somebody says, you shall do this, then they're making a prophecy, right? They're saying, I don't care what you think, right? I don't care what your will is. This is what's going to happen, right? Um, you shall do this. Um, very good. Yeah, Drowsnake says, uh, quotes, I will come back with gold. Oh, no, you won't, says Farmer Maggot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, and absolutely, Amareya, that was, of course, just uh, um, that the, I like the movies You Shall Not Pass for this reason that Gandalf says on the bridge. Um, uh, I think that that's, I think that Gandalf's the book's even stronger, but whatever, we'll get there. 
we're almost there. We're like so close to the bridge of Chassad Doom. Um, but anyway, um, um, yeah, good. Two juice man is saying, not by the hand of man shall he fall. Yes, shall he fall. Um, that's literally a prophecy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. What Gandalf says in the book is you cannot pass. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. Okay. Anyway, so there's some contemplation on will and shall. And like, I, I, I my suspicion is that it does track, um, uh, generally, uh, in Tolkien's world. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, anyhow, um, people who will see a world that I shall never know. I shall never know. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right. It's simple future in the negative. His never knowing is definite and it has nothing to do with his volition. Right. His never knowing is totally out of his control. By the way, remember it was in the last stanza that thing that we noticed about the tense that I have never seen. Um, remember what I said that I was assuming that he had said before I noticed that he didn't say it was that I will never see. Remember I said that last week? When we think about <laughs> when we think about that thing he didn't say in this way, Here I'm, I'm now doing a close reading of the thing that I said about our close reading last week, right? Um, by saying, in my head I was hearing that I will never see, I was hearing despair, right? But you hear the volition in despair? If you say, I will never do this, there's um, despair in there. Or at least, I really prefer the Middle English word, one hope. Um, it's the opposite of hope is one hope. Um, you can have, you can have hope for something and you can have one hope for something. Despair is like an advanced stage, right? It's, it's like a, hope and despair are not a perfect opposites of each other. Cause you can have like a little bit of hope, but you can't have like a little bit of despair. Who has a little bit of despair, right? I mean, if you're in despair, you're in despair, right? Um, I mean, you can hardly be a little bit despairing any more than you can be a little bit pregnant. Uh, but you can have a little bit of one hope, right? Uh, like you can have a little bit of hope. Um, but, um, but anyway, it was that, that, that note of despair of, uh, that would have been in I Will Never See, right? Um, that I was hearing in my head, which turned out, which was, of course, not what he was saying. Um, it's different than I shall never know. Um, it's a simple statement. It's, it's a prophecy, right? This is definite. My, not, my never knowing this um, is, is definite, right? Um, oh, very good. Ray has another quote here. It may be that I can unlock my jewels, but never again shall I make their like. And if I must break them, I shall break my heart, and I shall be slain. Yes, this is what is going to... Feanor was stating what he believed to be the facts about the future, right? This is how it certainly shall be. Um, though I'd say there's some irony there, Ray. Um, 
uh, I would contest Feanor's shells there. Um, you could even say that Feanor's fall, you can, you can hear Feanor's fall in the fact that he has said shall when he should have said will. Like, I will break my heart and I will be slain. It's, I think what he actually means, <laughs> right? I think that's what's actually true. Um, but in his head, it's, those are shall statements, not will statements, right? And I think, in my mind, that gap is like, well, that's Feanor to a T now, isn't it? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Now, I agree there's an important distinction because he does not will those things to happen. No, he does not. And he is choosing against them, right? And yet, again, I think the irony is the outcomes that he's describing that would happen, that, you know, that shall happen under that condition are... I don't think that it would actually kill him unless his volition were involved. Um, that's the part that I think is so illuminating about Feanor's condition. But anyway... <laughs> Not to get too sidetracked on Fanor. Um, um, okay. Um, all right. So what's the difference then? I mean, in, this, in these lines. People who will see a world that I shall never know. What's the difference? What's the difference? Oh, we'll get to the Silmarillion someday. Or I might have to leave that to others. I feel fairly confident as much as one can ever control these things. Uh, everything else being equal, I will likely survive to finish The Lord of the Rings. I'm not confident I would survive to the end of the Silmarillion after we, you know, for like another 40 years or whatever. Um, but, um, okay, okay, okay. Um, not saying I'll never talk about the Silmarillion, but probably not like this. Okay, okay. People who will see a world that I shall never know. Interesting. Um, whoa. <laughs> I still don't know how to say your, your username. Says, if we substitute must for shall, what impression do we get? Um, yeah. I must never know. Well, I, I have a problem with the must for shall substitution. It has a similar kind of force, but must puts like a a, a moral... Uh, oh, I said it rhymes with robe? Okay, wobe. Wobe. Okay. Um, is it a form, do you think? Uh, of the noun wabe? Um, uh, like the wabe upon which one might gyre? Or alternatively, gimbal? what I'm thinking. Um, but anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, I can't help but think of Alice, where that Alice, uh, Alice is up next in, uh, uh, in Mythgard Academy, so I've had, uh, I've had Jabberwocky on the brain. Um, but anyway, okay, 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 okay. Um, people who will see a world that I shall never know. 
let's do it the other way around. Change, change it to shall. And what is it? This is a game that I like to play when I'm trying to figure out, like, what is the significance of that wording? I change it and see how it's different. And then you can compare and contrast the way it is and the way it isn't, right? And people who shall see a world that I shall never know. People who shall see a world that I shall never know. That's simpler, right? It's a dispassionate statement about the future. He is thinking about people. Which people? The people who are inescapably going to see a world that he inescapably shall not see, right? Um, similarly, if we change them both to wills, people who will see a world that I will never know. Um, would seem to differentiate them in terms of their wills. Right? Again, I would introduce that sort of element of despair. I will never. I will never is a sad phrase, right? I will never. Sadder than I shall never. That's as may be, right? Um, yeah, Sarah, that's just the direction that I'm thinking. People will see. These are the people who are going to make an effort to go exploring and do as Bilbo has done. Yes. Yes. These people, the people he's referring to, the second people, right? People of line three. We're doing the people backwards. The people of line three are the people who are going to do what he has done in lines, in stanzas one and two, right? I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, right? What lies in the future of the line three people from stanza five? Meadow flowers and butterflies, probably. Maybe some yellow leaves and gossamer, right? Remember, the framework was all about the seeing, but the detached seeing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. That spectation. Now they're going to do it. He's not going to do it anymore, right? In this theoretical future time. But you're right, Sarah, that these are his heirs. He's not just saying, like, sooner or later, somebody's going to see this, right? It's a thing that's going to be seen by somebody. No, he's talking about the people. The people who will see that world as he has seen the world that he's been going through. Yeah, now I'm not saying it, it is looming future. I'm not saying it's theoretical. I'm not saying it's theoretical likely about. Um, but, um, but I do think, yes, if I had to say, that, that, that feels just right to me. If I had to summarize what is the connection between, like what is the force of will and shall there, especially of the will in line three, it would be a link to Bilbo himself. Right? People who will see a world that I shall never know. On the one hand, it distinguishes him from them, right? In this future time, I shall not see it, but they will, right? Um, they're going to choose it. Their volition will be set towards seeing that world. I shall not see it on account of I shall not be there, right? Um, but they not only shall be able to see it, they will see it. 
Um, so even though he's detaching himself from them, right, they are distinct in that the, those people will see and he shall not, right, um, which would make them seem almost like opposites, and yet there's that, there's that connection, there's that almost, uh, almost inheritance, right? Um, yeah. And Bjorning, I do see your point about coming back to Estelle, especially if we if we think straight from what we were looking at in stanza four last time, um, and say, think about the hopefulness, right? Um, in every wood and every spring, there is a different green, right? Um, and the way that we were linking that to, you know. Um, Above all shadows rides the sun, right? You know, Sam's insight in Mordor, both in the tower and later on, um, uh, you know, next to the thorn bushes, um, that um, uh, about the light and high beauty. If that is the kind of insight that Bilbo is having in stanza four, then stanza five, there's this sort of bequeathing it to them as far as in the world is concerned, right? Um, that the world is going to go on without him is not a sad thought. It's not a despairing thought. Quite the reverse, in fact. Right? Um, And of course, that fits perfectly well with the trend that we have noticed to this point. It's never been about him. Right? Why should it be about him now? Why should he be sad considering a future that doesn't have him in it? He's spent the whole poem to this point considering a past that barely had him in it, right? A past which he was blessed enough to spectate, right? Um, but it was never about him. Why should the future be about him, right? He's sitting there looking back at the past and thinking ahead about the future, um, but it was never about him. It's not going to be about those people either but they will continue seeing that world. So once again, we come back to the seeing as that dominant idea throughout this whole poem. Sit beside sea that I shall never know. Yeah. Um... You can also say, we forgot the people long ago. At least I forgot the people long ago. And in that we can see a... We can see Bilbo seeing a continuation, right? A um, a sequence. There's him in the middle, in the present, Right? And him looking back, and remember this brings me back to mind of how we weren't always in the simple past before. We were in the present perfect, right? Thinking about the past, but thinking about the past that is ending in the present time, right? Um, An action which is completed as of right now. He has always been positioned in that present point. And from that present point, he's been looking back at the autumns and the summers, and he's been looking forward at springs, thinking forward about springs 
and the fact that he hasn't seen them, right? Um, then we get the people. And he's thinking first about people long ago, um, which presumably in that framework means people from before. He saw lots of autumns and lots of summers, but he wasn't the first one to see them. Presumably, there were people before him who also saw the yellow leaves and gossamer and, uh, and saw the, the, the meadow flowers and butterflies and all of those things, right? And then he has seen them, and his seeing of them is coming to an end. Present perfect, right? Um, I think, by the way, the present perfect might be the noblest tense for an elderly person to speak in, right? He's not lamenting. He's not repining. He's not desperately hoping for a future that may or may not come. Um, The confidence of speaking in the present perfect, in the position like Bilbo is, um, is, I think, I like it a lot. But anyway, um, but then, of course, we know he's going to be in the in lines three and four. They're thinking about the future, right? Those the things that he shall not see because present perfect, right? Present perfect is the tense that's standing in the present and looking back at the past. Um, he's standing here and he's looking backwards. He can't he can think about the future, but he can't know anything about the future, right? And he shall never know that world, right? But he can think about the people who will see that world. Why? Because he knows some of them. Those people who will see a world that he shall never know. There are some of them. Like, there are the people long ago, and there are going to be people long hence as well, right? Um, People of the distant future who are not even born yet that he doesn't know, who will also see a world that he shall never know. But there's also the people that he does know that he can think about, right? Both the past people and the future people, but they're not exactly divided equally, you know? Um, Not exactly divided equally, I mean, between the past, future, and the future people. Past people and the future people. I think that, like, because the past people long ago, I, I take that as distant past. Um at least people who are already dead, right? People who are not in the present with him right now. But quite likely, people um, even longer ago. At least it opens up the possibility that he's thinking about, you know, like Hurin and Baron and the other elf friends of old, right? Would have, would be people long ago. Um, uh, but the future people, I think, are the people who are um, uh, sort of adjacent to him in this way. And I agree, Connor, this poem is remarkably touching. Yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, Yeah, we may need a class session after the final stanza to consider the poem as a whole and within this context. Totally, totally agree. I think we may still have two more weeks left on this poem. Speaking of which, it is super late. Uh, and I've not even really answered the question about knowing. We'll have to come back to that next time. Um, so we didn't quite finish stanza five. Well, it was close. 
it was close. Um, uh, still more to see and to talk about. But yeah, we'll we'll do stanza six next time, and then we'll see. We certainly have to return it to the context because if if you remember, the Lord of the Rings also contains prose. There was a bunch of prose that came before this poem, um, and I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a bunch of prose that's going to come after. Um, so, um, <laughs> and people who shall read a stanza that I shall never know. Yeah. Uh, like the, 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 like the people long ago, meaning like the people that have died of old age while we've been discussing this poem. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also possible. Um, yeah, this book does have prose. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that it has prose and like spoilers, but oh my goodness, look, there's prose right after the poem. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> anyway. All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's a uh, field trip. It's long past field trip time. Uh, so um, uh, we will get... How long till the next poem? A ways, actually. It's going to be a bit, I think, until we get... To, isn't the next poem Gimli's poem? The Moria poem? The Khazad-dum poem? I think so. Yeah, Draw Snake, that was my memory, too. I don't think there are any other poems before that one. Yeah, Draw Snake, that will be a quick class. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll rip through that one pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> people who will make it to the appendices that I shall never know. Yeah, that's also very, very possible. Okay, thanks, everybody. Uh, we're going to shift, as I have said. Good evening, Valori field trip time Good long evening. past field trip time sorry so we'll do it we'll do a shortish field trip. i know i i know that one of the consequences of um of uh doing the um oh, what is going on here stop with stupid notifications windows um the one of the consequences of doing poetry is it's like short changing our field trips but um we'll uh We'll, we'll make do, I suppose. We'll make do. We'll make do. Okay, so here's, but we have a goal. It's a relatively simple goal tonight. So let's go back to Echad Dunan. Um, you know that little um, that little way station customs house uh, next to Moria, and mm-hmm. we will. Um, so I'm going to milestone over there, and then we're going to get to Mirabel. Like the goal is to just to get to Mirabel, to get to Mirabel okay. and find the milestone there, and. All right. We'll try not to go too deep into detail there. We'll just kind of look about us and make some plans for what we'll look at and talk about in future. But I think getting there and the first leg of the road, we've already done the other direction. So it should be relatively easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. Those right. right, yeah, and like uh, the fact balanced, that it's so. the fact that it's the middle of the night feels perfectly apt. Like you know, feels like under the stars know. and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, just like that, we're really late starting up. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Let us head down the road. So, all right, we're now doing this ride from the Moria perspective. So we have emerged from dwarf lands and we immediately find that customs house way station, um, you know, uh, refreshment area gift shop. And now we've got mm-hmm. the triumphal arches. So we're, we're, we, the elves are trying to signal to the dwarves like, Hey, you're in elf terrain now. And we believe in like open, but beautiful things, right? We're not, yes. uh, 
you're definitively not underground, uh, but um, but you're hmm. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? If like the the kind of archways that we have are designed to be like, hey, it's like you're you're out here above ground, our dwarf friends, but you're like kind of tunneling, right? It's like you're you're, you're going through you're going to go through arches, you're going to go through little tunnels. Sort uh, of the opposite of the pillars carved to look like trees. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, helping their, you know. Uh, underground their subterranean friends to feel more comfortable up here above ground hmm. not that it, i mean like they're not, but they're not going to like make a whole tunnel right they're not going to yeah because yeah, that would be walling like out the sun and the air and all of the beauty it, right? yeah yeah I, I don't think the dwarves get the bends if they come out from underground too fast. right no exactly exactly um exactly but okay so now we're coming down uh, very close to the beautiful bubbling river Right, but I'm thinking here. So that's Tralalalali land up there, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. Um, so we yes, mm-hmm. we just passed as I thought the intersection. Right, so this is where you go mm-hmm. north to other elvish ple- pleasure parks. So uh, the trip up to Tralalalali land is not a long one if you want to make a nice, pleasant detour. Um, yeah, was yeah. there a ford here? The road doesn't continue south, does it? No, it does not. So at least not according to the map. Um, Okay, so I'm just wanting to make sure this if this was a three or four well, way. You keep going in this direction. You go to Anadwy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's you. Get. But I'm like, I don't think there was any original road there. Uh, is what I mean. No, I don't. So think again, so. thinking Probably. from the Aregian standpoint, from you know uh, the Celebrimbor uh, frame of mind here. Okay. So it we're like it is confirmed the next poem is Gimli's. Okay, yeah, it is. There we go. That's what I thought. About I was pretty Moria. sure. It's pretty sure. That's going to be a fascinating one because we're going to have to compare it and contrast it with its source. So, mm. um, but you're right, um, Drowsnake, because I'm in a Celebrimborian state of mind. That's exactly. You're right. We should <laughs> seize the opportunity to use the adjective. Um, okay. Uh. All right, so we're still going along the river. Mm-hmm. We've got these boulders. Now, I haven't seen any... Since we left, like, the arches there, I have not seen any evidence of any other construction. Yes. I, I keep swinging around looking north because I'm looking for any, like, bits of ruins or anything. Like we saw some Look, slightly off the path this, before. Yeah, only, only across the river on top of that big hill up there. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, up, up over there. And that seems close to the city, probably, right? That's probably, yeah, I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, an extension of the city. So, um, okay, now there's our first thing off to the right. But this, I think we're now now entering Low Holland. Yeah, we're... we're yeah, we're near Pember, aren't we? This is the suburbs. What we're seeing oh, over yeah. here on the right is presumably the suburbs. Oh. Okay, so, but I'm going to resist the temptation to explore it more fully because... That's not our goal tonight because it's super late and we're just going to get our initial lay of the land and we're going to find the milestone and then we shall resume. Now we get a huge towering bridge over here. I have to turn off my Mm -hmm. light because I can't see anything on the screen when it's nighttime. Um, And okay, so we're going to come. So we're going to come up and having ridden right alongside this river all the way down from Moria, from the gates of Moria, really. Um, we now sweep across this 
bridge, which I'm going to be interested to compare and contrast this bridge to the one in Tralala Lali Land. Yeah, I was we'll going to say it to seems that. to have that. Okay, very, now we've got yeah. another uh, pillars with that trellis between yes. them. So we've got now buildings on either side. So once we cross the river, we're in, we're in town, more or less. Yes. Okay, and we've got. Let's see anything over there? I'm not seeing too much, but there might be. Hang on, I'm trying to like look either side while I'm riding straight, and that's just not a winning proposition here. <laughs> okay. All right, so now we come up upon... All right, well, we've got a path going up onto the hill to the left, which is interesting. So we got... The road brings us to one of two destinations. Either up the yeah. stairs to those towers on the hill or over yet another sweeping bridge back across the river. Into a mission. Really into funny. a mission. We can't get into this? Instance. Nope, I don't have a corresponding quest. All right. Yep. So I guess it's otherwise we go then, right? Yeah, I, th I guess so, yeah. Oh, no, wait, that's a different river? Okay, sorry, I was losing my uh, sense of geography here. Okay. Hey, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, different We've river. We've got another choice. This, this one has water in it. Right, right. Oh, yeah, it did have water in it. Of course, I was seeing the waterfall and not noticing that the river with the waterfall had water and the river was a dry bed did not. Okay, so... We've got another division once we've come up the stairs. Mm -hmm. But let's keep going up the slope, I think. Oh, this is uh, very reminiscent of uh, Added Luin. Yes. Okay. Oh, I want to look at the mosaic later. Later, oh, later, man. later. Oh, man. There's a lot here. Okay, so we've got I've got the stable master. Is there a milestone? I don't know if there is a milestone. There is a campsite, but that only helps some of us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's a milestone. Um, is upstairs? What was that? Uh, oh, it's I upstairs. Okay. If there is one. That, yeah, there is one up here. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not looking. Well done. Well done. Not looking. Okay, going. Keep going found the stable master I feel like I've ridden off that cliff I just did the hairpin turn on several times in the past <laughs> oh whoa oh here we go okay oh man I know it's gorgeous up here alright okay this is really interesting yeah you're gonna have to finish that at a reasonable time next week so we can yeah, look at this this is maybe cool so. okay, this is maybe we just not get outside this room next time okay alright the milestone. Excellent. Quite okay. Likely. Very good. Okay, so here we are. And just not looking at the beautiful stonework around us, but instead looking out. Where are we? We are I can't tell anything because I'm looking oh, at we're tree looking branches. Overlooking a river, I think. Okay, so there we're looking down on what direction am I facing? West? Okay. Right, so there's that, the other river, the one with actual water in it, which can be seen from here, and that other place mm -hmm. across the river that we couldn't go to. And then north we can see, oh, what's that? That's, hmm, we'll have to see. And, um, oh, that's the Guathlo, right? Of course, the Guathlo. How could I forget the Guathlo? 
the Guathuo is a very important river. Um, okay. All right. All right. Have my bearings now. Okay. All right. So we have found Mirabelle. This is, of course, a place that Tolkien never describes or talks about in any detail whatsoever. Mm. Um, but it is the theoretical capital of Celebrimbor, the center of all of the Celebrimborian activity of the Second Age here in the Kingdom of Eregion. Um And, uh, okay. All right. So we will, um, mm. we will look around here and see, having seen the rest, almost all of the rest of Elv, um, you know, Elvish Eregion, um, uh, checking out this and seeing what we see, both in terms of similarities and different. Exactly. The heart of Celebrim boredom on Earth. <laughs> That's fantastic. Celebrim boredom. Is, is excellent. You do my boy dirty like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not an insult. Um, it's a special kind of boredom. Um, but uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. We will start here next time. Now that we've found our way and um, I'm particularly interested by the the rivers. And the, so it's at the confluence of the two rivers, the one river and the one non-river, of course. Um, and um, uh, the river and the river that is not a river. Yeah, exactly. And I want to be thinking about again. I want to think about the dwarven visitors, but not only the dwarven visitors, the elven visitors, and what are we getting? Anyway. Much to think about in this area. I think we'll be here for a while, even longer than we'll be here finishing the rest of the poem. But <laughs> anyway, I will leave it at the, after a brief uh, excursion here tonight, and we shall. Now was certainly not the time to begin an exploration in detail of Mirabelle. So we will start here next week. Um, thank you very much for joining us as always and I will see you guys next week for the end of the poem if not perhaps necessarily the conclusion of our discussion thereof uh, thanks everybody good night now bye